holes in our inner man, consecrates our every thought, teaches us about your immeasurable love. Oh, Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the privileges that we have in your Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Without him, we stand far off as strangers, as outcasts. But in him, we draw near as we are touched by his kingly scepter. We know his embrace. Without him, we dare not lift up our guilty eyes to you. But in Christ, we can gaze upon you as our Father, as our friend. Without Jesus, we hide our lips in trembling shame for the things we've done. But in Christ, we open our mouths in petition and praise. Without Jesus, all is wrath and consuming fire. But in him, all is love and the comfort of our souls. Without Christ, hell is gaping below us in eternal anguish. As the Puritans used to say, and in Jesus its gates are barred to us by his precious blood. Without him, all darkness spreads and horrors in front and from behind. But in Christ, an eternity of glory is our boundless horizon. Without Jesus, all within us is terror and dismay. But in Christ, every accusation is charmed into joy and peace. So Jesus, thank you. Without you, everything calls for our condemnation. But in you, all things minister to our comfort. In you, all things are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Praise be to you for the grace of the unspeakable gift of your death on the cross for us. Jesus, thank you for worship. Thank you that through it, you shepherd our souls. Thank you, Father, that you are with those in our congregation, like Paul Delorier, who are healing from surgery this week. We pray that you will protect him, heal him quickly. We pray for Walker Hall, who also underwent surgery this week, that you'll continue to shepherd his arm and his little heart and help him to trust in you. Father, we pray over all the needs of our church, too many to number. You know them all. And not one of them is too small for your care. Take our anxieties, big or little they may be, and help us as one body to bring them to the foot of the cross, where there we find all the privileges of being called sons and daughters, no longer slaves, the greatest news in the world. Through Christ our Lord we pray. And all of God's people together said, Amen. Hello, I have the pleasure this morning of giving a very brief announcement um, that uh, we, we didn't originally have planned, but then realized it's something we should talk about. So next week, um, as a reminder, we are having our Linton offering, and the two things that that was going towards were um, the, uh, to have services out at the land, number one, and the other one was for youth interns. And as we were discussing that this week, we realized that there's some other information that uh, you guys should know about uh, why we are particularly interested in youth interns for this summer. So um, you may have heard Blake talk in the past about uh, the idea of a sabbatical, and we have decided on the session to, to institute a policy for our pastors specifically where they'll take periods off from their sort of day-to-day uh, normal pastorly duties 
right? Every five to seven years or so. This is a, a practice that all of our sister churches in Tulsa um, also do. Um, it is a great idea for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which is that it's a very difficult job. And we want our pastors to love what they do, to uh, have time to reflect, to sort of zoom out from all the day-to-day, you know, the thousand and one things that have to happen so that we can be here in a gym to have a service and have someone preach the word and all those things. And so uh, this summer then, Blake is actually going to take off from June to October to focus on, um, on well, he, he's going to talk about that later. There will be, uh, he's going to send a letter out that's going to kind of talk about what to expect and what that'll look like. And we were planning on announcing that later on, uh, you know, in April, May timeframe, but then realized that, oh, actually this r- is a great reason why we need some summer interns because we're going to be, uh, have a few less hands this summer. So we're all going to be able to, uh, to help out a bit more. In, in that though, we would really love to have youth interns. What else? Did I forget anything that work? Okay, great. People are clapping for me to leave already. Thank you. Um, one, of the, uh, um, one of the things that, that we are about to do is um, uh, going to be new for some of you. And that is we are about to have baptisms. Some of you grew up in churches that didn't practice baptisms. Some of you grew up in churches that didn't practice membership. People sometimes will ask me, Blake, where, where um, in the Bible does it say you should become a member of the church? And... Every New Testament letter that Paul wrote, all 13 of them, assume that those to whom he is writing are members of the church. To ask if you should be a member of the church is almost like asking a golfer in the PGA handbook if he is a human. (laughs) It's assumed that you're a member of the church under the care and nurture of the session. And so we're about to have members join our church. And right after that, we're going to practice the sacrament of baptism. And I want to talk about that just for a minute. How many of you have ever read the Old Testament? Okay, most of us in this room, right? In the Old Testament, you know how it talks about Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7 in particular, how Abraham was to be set off and Abraham was to receive a sign of God's covenant faithfulness to him. What was that sign? Anybody remember what that sign was? circumcision. And that sign was to give, to be given, that's not a word you say every week at church, is it? Circumcision. And that sign was to be given to Abraham and also to whom? To his children. And that was to be a sign to the world that they are marked off as God's covenant people, a visible sign that they are part of the visible church of God's holy people. Now, Can anybody please show me, by raising of hands, anywhere in the New Testament where it says that we should stop the practice of marking people off by a sign, a visible sign? There are no hands raised because there are no places in Scripture where we see that practice stop. We do see the sign change from circumcision, thank goodness, to baptism. And it's extended not only to little boys, but also to little girls, to men and to women. And in fact, everywhere in the New Testament where we see 
the opportunity for a man or a woman who has a household to be baptized, the new sign of God's covenant upon that family. We also see their entire household baptized. Now, somebody will say to me, Blake, where in the Bible does it say you should ever baptize children? And I would just ask you the same question. Where in the Bible can you show me where it says we should not? Where in the Bible, as another illustration, does it say that women should take the Lord's Supper? It does not say that anywhere explicitly. But yet everybody in this room and I believe that, of course, women should take the Lord's Supper. What we are about to do in just a moment is baptize one child, an infant, who has not yet come to faith, and then three young children who have. Praise God. It's amazing. It's awesome. And in the book of Acts, every adult on the mission field who was not a Jew, which is every example we have in the book of Acts, because it's a missionary work, when they were baptized, they received the sign of God's covenant promises upon them, which was circumcision. Baptism for adults, yes, it is publicly saying that they are a Christian, but it's more than that. It's saying that God is faithful to his gospel being preached. And when the condition of faith is met with those promises, then that person becomes a Christian, is saved. But for young children who haven't yet been able to make a profession of faith, they too are invited into the covenant of the visible church so that they can be raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We are not going to baptize um, um, Walker Hall as an infant in just a moment because he's cute, although he is. We are going to baptize him because we believe it's biblical. Baptism does not save anyone. Faith alone saves them. It is simply the mark of his entrance into the visible church and the culture and environment in which God has covenanted with his people to raise them up in his nurture and in his admonition. And I know that for many of you like me, we grew up in churches that didn't practice infant baptism. I didn't grow up in a church that practiced infant baptism. But we do it because we believe it's biblical, not because it's tradition. And if you have any questions about that, I would love to talk with you more about that after the service. Please come find me. Now, those members who are about to join the church, uh, the Beesons and the Garrisons in the halls, would you please join me up front? When we join the church together, we take vows together as members. We commit ourselves to help each other walk in the truth of the gospel. And so um, the halls and the Beesons and the Garrisons are coming from membership this morning. And so I have five questions to read to you. And if you affirm these, please say, we do. You ready? Here we go. We do. Not yet. Not yet. Number one, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy, do you? And do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and depend upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to you in the gospel, do you? And do you now resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit 
that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Jesus, do you? Do you promise to serve Christ and his church by supporting and participating in its worship and work to the best of your ability, do you? And do you submit yourself to the government and the discipline of the church and promise to further its purity and peace, do you? Amen. Let me pray for these families together. Jesus, thank you for bringing them into covenant membership with us. Thank you that you intend to shepherd our souls under the watchful care of men you've ordained to be elders of the church. And so would you bless the halls? Would you bless the garrisons? Would you bless the Beesons? Would you help them to enjoy the membership privileges of being a member in Christ's church and have all the privileges of being cared for and nurtured and to grow in community that you offer them. And help us as a church together to love them well as fellow brothers and sisters. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Those of you who are uh, being baptized are welcome to remain up front. And now we have the great joy and delight to baptize Walker Hall. And Walker, before we have you baptized, I'm going to ask you and your family a couple of questions. Eric and Lacey, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit, do you? And do you claim God's covenant promises in his behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own, do you? And do you now understand, uh, unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example? that you will pray with and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurtured admonition of the Lord, do you? And to the congregation of Trinity, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting Eric and Lacey in the Christian nurture of Walker, do you? What is the name of this child? Walker James Hall, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I didn't get your cast wet, did I? Oh, I did. Oh, my gosh. Well, this is why we have a towel to cover it up, just like that. Walker wanted to share one thing. The thing that he, um, there's so many things you could say about Walker Hall, but one thing he, that his parents wrote is he doesn't like baptisms. It's the first one he's ever had. Yes, I do. Oh, you, he, he just changed. Wonderful. Well, I heard earlier that you didn't, but I'm so glad it was better than you expected, brother. Hey, God bless you. We love you. We care for you. Welcome to Christ's family. Eliza, if you could come up. We're happy that you could on this very Isa Jane Marie Garrison.
I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, Amen. I got her good. It's almost Baptist right there. And the Jameses, yes, that's worthy of clapping, yes. And the Jameses and the Eshbox, if you guys would please come forward also, that would be fantastic. And watch your step on the floor. Come here for baptism. Hey, Alyssa, you're coming because of profession of faith, just like Eliza, right? That you believe in Jesus. And I have a couple of questions to read to you. Can I read these for you? Just like the, your mom and dad took membership vows, so also this, in a way, is your membership vow and your baptism into the church. So do you know that you're a sinner and that because you're a sinner, you deserve death? And do you know that you can't fix the sin problem? Only God can. And do you believe in the Lord Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? And do you trust only in Him for salvation? Do you? And do you promise with God's help to try to live like Jesus? And do you promise to help the church glorify God and serve others to the best of your ability? And do you promise to obey your mom and dad and the leaders of this church and to love others in this church? Awesome. Amen. Alyssa, Elizabeth, James, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. James, if you'd please take your place over here by the garrisons in the halls, that'd be fantastic. Hey, Cohen, come on up here, buddy. I got some questions for you too, man, okay? Here we go. Cohen also has placed his faith in Jesus. Isn't that awesome? It's amazing. This is what we're about, guys. We're about helping children come to know the good news of the gospel. Cohen, do you know that you are a sinner and that because you're a sinner that you deserve death? Do you know that? And do you know that you can't fix the sin problem? Only God can. Yes. And do you believe in the Lord Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners like me and you? Yes. And do you trust in Him for your salvation? Yes. And do you promise with God's help to try to live like Jesus? Yes. And do you promise to help the church glorify God and serve others to the best of your ability? Yes. I'm almost done. One more question. You're doing great. Do you promise to obey your mom and dad to the best of your ability and to um, obey the leaders of the church and to love others in the church? Do you? Yes. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Cohen, this is it. Would you stand right here, center court, like we talked about? Okay. The rest of it, we're just pouring on them. <laughs> Cohen... Lynn Eschbach, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
could take this if you need to try yourself. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to be adding members. Some who have been baptized years ago and been a part of different churches. Um, others who just got baptized today. We are thankful that you're bringing these beings into Trinity. Help those of us who have been a part of Trinity to love them, to embrace them as they are. Enable us all to walk together, being led by the Holy Spirit. And may this place with them added be an even more beautiful picture of the body that Jesus died for. For all of our children, faith, Now in Christ Jesus, we who are once off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. The peace of the Lord be with you always and also with you. Let's stand and say hi to these new families, and please watch your step if you come close up here in the front. Okay, friends, if you have a Bible, if you'd please grab a Bible and turn with me to John chapter 4. We join together with brothers and sisters across the globe today who are worshiping. And so therefore, it's right and good and appropriate that we together confess our faith. As Nathan leads us in the Apostles' Creed, would you please give your attention to your bulletin on page 10? If you, uh, if you don't have it memorized, the Apostles' Creed, that's what we're doing for um, our Confession of Faith today. Uh, it's on page 10, as Blake said. Uh, if you would, say this back with me. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven 
and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen indeed. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We are in John chapter 4. I'll read beginning at verse 16, and we'll go down through verse 30. The context of this scripture reading is the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And just then, the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Bactrochychytrium dendrobatidus. It's also known as BD for obvious reasons. It was announced this week that BD, according to the Atlantic Monthly, was the most dangerous disease in the world. They have estimated that it has taken out 200 species. And that figure, the experts say, is decades old. It eats away the skin and it triggers fatal heart attacks. New figures compiled by a team led by Dr. Ben Schleel from the Australian National University say that the actual figures and effect is actually much, much worse. In the 14th century, there was a bacteria that killed 50 million people in Europe. Between 25 and 60% of Europe died because of what we now call today 
the Black Death or bubonic plague. A hundred years ago, there was a pandemic of flu that took out not 50 million, but took out 100 million people. 5% of the world's population died at the hands of a horrible virus a hundred years ago. But neither of these devastating historical diseases that have swept through our landscape come even close to the destructive power of BD, a singularly apocalyptic fungus that's unrivaled in its ability not only to kill, but to irradiate entire species. Nothing in recorded history has a single, never in recorded history has a single disease burned down so much of the tree of life. It rewrote our understanding of what disease could do, Dr. Schleel says. It's a terrifying summary, says Jody Raleigh for the Australian Museum. We knew it was bad, but this really confirms how bad. Experts have been freaking out for a long time in the ivory tower, said Karen Lips from the University of Maryland, who was involved in the new study. Despite all the attention, I don't think we fully appreciate it. BD is perhaps the perfect killer. It kills with gusto and without fuss. While some diseases affect only specific hosts, BD covets nutrients found across skins and so targets the entire group indiscriminately. It spreads easily through the water and it persists outside of its host. What would we do if BD came to Tulsa, would you move? Do you think it would change your patterns? Your life? What if you told a loved one about BD and they changed the subject? Oh, okay, that's great. How's your bracket in March Madness? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. How was prom? When is the OU spring game? You want to go to the mercantile with me this weekend? Something far worse than BD is here, friends. The Bible calls it sin. And as bad as BD is, sin is far, far worse. And there's only one cure. We come this morning to a text in John chapter 4. It's a famous story. It's a story about a woman who was at the well at noon. It's a remarkable story because of the deep underlying tensions between two people groups, Jews and Samaritans, a tension which still exists to this day. But it teaches us something about the things that we value and how those things that we value shape our attitudes and perspectives and they change our behaviors forever. I'm going to give you the principle of the passage. I'm just going to give it to you. And then we're going to walk through it together. Here's the principle. We are to worship wherever we are by the power of the Holy Spirit under the authority of His Word. Let me say that again. We are to worship wherever we are by the power of the Holy Spirit, we worship in spirit under the authority of His Word. 
in truth. The only cure to the disease of sin is the finished work of Jesus. Amen? Let's see how it shapes us. First, we are to worship. What is worship? Worship comes from the old English term worth-ship. The Greek word here is proskuneo. It, it means to recognize something or someone as of superior value. So worship, therefore, refers to the way that we acknowledge someone or something's worth. The way that we acknowledge the object of worth in our respective life affects the way that we live. Imagine that your grandmother gave you a set of jewelry. It was, you know, it was, it was nice, it was old, and, you know, it was kind of pretty. So you took it and you threw it in the top drawer. And one day, one day you have a, a friend who comes over to your house who's a jeweler, and, and, and somehow, someway, he, he sees this set of jewelry, and he goes crazy. He goes berserk. He says, uh, do you know what that is? And you say, yes, it's my grandmother's whole set of jewelry. And, he's, and he takes you and he looks at it with you and he says, look at the jewels in this thing. Look at the way the, the gold is intricately laid in. Do you know what this is? This is the work. This has to be the work. It's a very, very rare work. It has to be the work of some 17th jeweler whose works are extremely rare today. And how much do you think this thing is worth? And your friend proceeds to tell you that it's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more. Now, do you think you take this jewelry and throw it into your top drawer now? And what if your friend said to you, look, you got to get this thing taken care of. And so you go out and you invest into a strong box. You buy a case for it, right? The top drawer won't do any longer. And, and then your jeweler friend says to you, you can't just keep it in a, in a safe. You need to take this and have it repaired. It will double or triple itself in value. You need to have it cleaned up. You need to have it restored. And there's only one person who can do it. And he lives in Switzerland. And it's going to cost you several thousand dollars to have it fixed up. And compared to the price of this jewelry set, you think, well, what is several thousand dollars? Of course you have it done. And you ship it off to Switzerland to come back. Now, in that illustration, what has happened? Your perspective has changed. And the amount that you're willing to invest, which several thousand dollars may, like if you say you need to repair your car, it's going to cost you $7,000, you're thinking, I'm just going to sell it. But you've got this piece of jewelry, seven, several thousand dollars. Of course I'll spend several thousand dollars to have it repaired because it will double or triple its value and it's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's all a matter of perspective because what your jeweler is helping you do is he's helping you see the superior value and worth. And when you see it, it changes your attitude toward the jewelry. It changes your attitude about how your life is going to change in life. I mean, this jewelry could change your life. This happens to us all the time. You know, imagine that you inherit a piece of real estate, which is pretty common around Owasso. People pass down land. And, and let's say that, that somebody gives you a piece of real estate that's just in a prime area of Tulsa Metro. And the real estate agent says, this thing is worth so much more than you thought. 
It's worth millions of dollars. And you need to spend $15,000 to go and get it into shape. Fix up the house that's on it. Do some surveys for the land. Would you even bat an eye at spending that kind of money if investment is worth millions? Of course not. Why? Because it's small change in comparison to the superior value of the product. Or here comes a farmer who's, who's next to some land and he is just watching deer and turkey and quail and pheasant come down from, tech, uh, from Kansas and they're like roosting on this land and the land comes up for sale and the farmer friend of yours says, you've got to buy this piece of land. Like you could lease this out to hunters for like generations and make more than your money back in the first 10 years. And so you, of course, you, you see how amazing the land is and you go and buy the land. What's happening? The jeweler, your real estate agent, the farmer is helping you see a change of perspective to see the superior value. They are filling your minds with the value of something and it fills you with awe and it changes their behavior toward it. Um, you ever wonder why people in the Bible like Isaiah could be told by God, Isaiah, I have a job for you. I want you to go preach the gospel to a people. None of them will ever listen to you. None of them will ever hear a thing you say. They will have hard hearts and then you're going to die. And Isaiah chapter 6 tells us a story where God has shown Isaiah the beauty of his holiness. And what does Isaiah say? What is the cost of my life to do this compared to the superior value of knowing you? And he gives his life to something far superior. What is Isaiah doing? The jeweler, the real estate agent, the farmer, Isaiah, they are helping you worship. Or Stephen, you ever wondered how Stephen, when you read the Bible in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is being persecuted for the faith after he speaks before the Sanhedrin, and they are stoning him to death. And Stephen, as he's being killed, raises his eyes to heaven and gazes into heaven, Acts 7, 55. And he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. And he says, I see heavens open. What's happening to Stephen? He's worshiping. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. How could he say that? Because he knows that the price of letting the bitterness go at the cost of his life is so small compared to the superior greatness of Jesus that of course he willingly gives his life. Or Paul, Paul, the feet of whom were laid Stephen's garments. Paul says at the beginning of his life, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. And then by the end of his life, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he's saying this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. Paul was able to worship more deeply as he got older because as he saw the superior value of Jesus, he saw the sinfulness of his own heart grow deeper and deeper. He had a change of what? Of perspective. 
My son Bennett, hi Bennett, has a stuffed animal called Fluffy. It's a bear. Bennett loves Fluffy. And if you were to say, Fluffy goes with him everywhere he goes. And if you were to say, Bennett, if you give me Fluffy, we'll give you a new custom home. Bennett might think about what custom home meant for a second. And then he would say, no thanks, raw deal. Why? Because Bennett's perspective is that Fluffy is everything to him. And here in this passage, you have a woman who is sitting at the well, and Jesus touches his sore spot, and she reels back. You know the story in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? Uh, He says, it's like a man who finds a treasure buried in a field. And in his joy, what does the man do? He sells everything he has and he buys the field. That's worship. Or the pearl of great price. It's about a merchant who's looking for the pearl of great price and he finds that pearl. And what does he do? He sells everything he has and he buys the pearl. Our lives are a transition from understanding the value of Fluffy, though he is valuable, no doubt, the value of Fluffy, to understanding the superior greatness of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. And in that transition from getting you off of those things that you clung to as a child, to understand the surpassing value of Jesus, that is the way that you grow in your sanctification and that you grow in your understanding of what worship is. That's it. Fills you with awe, and you gladly make investments you otherwise would never have made because you know the surpassing worth of the object of your affection. Does that make sense? We are to worship. We are to worship by the power of the Holy Spirit. Worship is never purely an academic exercise. It is a loving relationship with the creator of our souls. It involves our whole being. To worship in spirit means to worship in communion with God. It means at least three things. It means that you're ascribing worth to his name, which we just talked about. That you're spreading the good news of the worth of his name to others. And that you're not holding back something for yourself. And here Jesus sits with a Samaritan woman talking to Jesus and he quickly touches the sore spot of her heart, her sexual life her marital, or lack thereof, life. And Jesus presses on it. And what does she do? Notice in the text, lower your eyes. It says, Jesus says, go call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, of course, you're right. And the woman says to him, verse 19, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Right where Jesus wants her. And then what does she say? She totally changes the subject, doesn't she? Jesus, our fathers worship on this mountain. But you say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. What's interesting about verse 20 to me is that the tactic that Satan uses most often, amongst Christians especially, is whenever the Holy Spirit begins to touch our sore spot, we immediately change the subject. Why did they baptize a child again? What is the difference between Baptists and Presbyterians? 
What, what, what is the difference between Arminian and Calvinism? What is the difference between... Like, we immediately go into these narrow theological controversies, good in the right context that those may be, but we tend to change the subject from the gospel to religion as quick as possible as human beings. And this is exactly what the woman at the well did. Jesus is helping her understand the gospel, and she's driving the conversation Last night, um, uh, Lauren and I went to the screw tape letters at the PAC, and there's a great line in the screw tape letters where screw tape, the uncle, says that, that our, our father, who, of course, being Satan in the kind of reverse devotional that screw tape letters is, if you're familiar with the book, you know that it's about a senior demon talking to a junior demon on how to mess up C.S. Lewis's life, the author of the work. And... Um, you have to think about it in reverse. Our enemy is actually God in the book and our father in the book is actually Satan because it's demons talking. He says, our father's greatest tactic is to change the subject to religion as soon as possible. Denominational distractions, that's how you get them. He's not so worried that his patient becomes a Christian in the book, screw tape letters. What he's worried about now is how to take the Christian and get him off the gospel as quick as possible and in as many ways as possible. Fill him with noise. So that his life lacks both music and silence, the two tools, screw tape says, of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, the woman uh, Jesus says to the woman, believe me, neither, Jesus tries to get her back on the gospel, neither at Gerizim or on Jerusalem will you worship. Neither, because you worship where I am. The Holy Spirit inhabits us and empowers us to do his will as we release more and more of our lives to the Lord. And we live in communion with him. And the Holy Spirit practically helps us do at least two things in this passage you see. He helps us remember the surpassing value of Jesus. That's one of the Holy Spirit's roles for you every Sunday morning when you're at worship, to remember the surpassing value of Jesus. In John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, which I know some of you may have watched this weekend at Trinity House, there's a line where Greatheart says to, uh, um, to Christian's son, Samuel, when they're going through forgetful green, Remember this part in the book? They're going through forgetful green and, and uh, Greyheart says to Samuel, forgetful green is the most dangerous place in all these parts. For at any time the pilgrim faces a fight with suffering, he easily forgets what favors he has received and how unworthy of them he actually is. Forgetfulness. could also be called one of the greatest diseases of our time. The Holy Spirit not only helps us remember the surpassing value of Jesus, but he also helps us foster worship together. Notice, notice in verse 22 where she says, uh, Jesus says, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, God has given us through his revelation the truth He's given us truth for how we are to worship. We worship what we uh, do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here where worshipers, true worshipers, will worship in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't just help us remember the surpassing value of Jesus, but he helps us foster worship together. C.S. Lewis wrote in Reflections on the Psalms that I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. In other words, when you praise together in corporate worship, it completes the joy, which is why you grow frustrated when you worship as an isolated Christian. It's why you grow frustrated when you worship through the screens alone at your house. And of course, there are great times to worship when you're ill, to watch it online, to be able to watch this. It's wonderful. But if you make that your primary habit, you are missing what worship is because the Holy Spirit fosters worship together as a people. Don't you feel this? There is a difference between worshiping together in God's presence with his people and worshiping through the medium of some technology that removes you from the presence of people. It's not the technology that's the problem. It's the isolation that's the problem. So we are to be people who worship wherever we are by the power of his Holy Spirit. Lastly, under the authority of his word. Verse 25, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. She knew the Old Testament. She knew the Messiah is coming. I've heard it from my fathers. I know his word. But Jesus says to her, but do you know what the word teaches? Do you know what every verse of the Old Testament is about? It's about me. I who speak to you am he, Jesus says. And all throughout Scripture, we see the value of God's word. It is not a mere instruction book for the way we are to live our life. It is a narrative, one story cover to cover, not many different stories comprised of a single book. It is one book comprised of many stories. I'm sorry, one book comprised of one story. And that story is the story of Christ. How he came for you to shape and change your perspective like the jeweler, like the real estate agent, like the farmer. Your Savior comes to change your perspective so that you're able to see that God's word, which is not the treasure, Jesus is the treasure, but God's word helps you see the truth of the world. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we also thank God constantly that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. Or Acts chapter 17, when the Bereans heard the scriptures in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness and they examined the scripture daily to see if these things were so. Where did they go? Where's the truth? What's the lens through which they understand the word? It's God's word. It has to be. Or Ephesians 6, 17. You have the, you have the armor of God given to you. What is, what is given to them as the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit with which they can go on the offensive, but the word of God, the sword of the spirit. For the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces the divisions of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter four. And then Peter, oh, Peter says the very end of his letters in Second Peter, 
Beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and be at peace. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him. And Peter says, I know the things that Paul writes can be confusing. There are some things in him that are hard to understand. But knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawlessness and you lose your stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peter's raising up God's word to be the lens through which you understand the superior worth and value of Jesus. That's what Jesus was trying to get this woman at the well to get. And I have a sense that she began to get it at the end, don't you? Despite all of her sins and despite all of her failures, despite all of my sins and my failures, Jesus doesn't let me change the subject on him. He drives our hearts back to the cross. And he says, I who speak to you am he. I am the anointed one who is to come. And later when she goes back to town, she left her water jar. She runs back to town and she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That's the question for you. What of superior value do you worship? You do. Write it down. Name it before it names you. Bactrochychytrium dendrobotidus. Thank goodness is limited to amphibians. But sin isn't. Our sin is far, our disease, our fungus is far worse. It kills with gusto and without fuss. And we change the subject when our sore spots are touched. But that is what Christ came to do for you. To refocus your affections and attentions upon the one thing of such superior value that you will gladly spend your life and worship to him. You are to worship wherever you are by the power of the Holy Spirit under the authority of his word because he has healed us. Touch your sore spot, he might, but he touches it to heal it. And he healed it through the cross and through the resurrection. That is what it means, friends, to begin to worship in spirit and truth. That is what it means to begin to taste the living water. That is what it means to begin to see the superior greatness of Jesus will shape our attitude, our behavior, our affections, our behaviors will change in ways we never could have imagined because this asset that has been given to us by grace shapes everything about the dreams and hopes to which we aspire. He's here. And he invites you to know him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to have minds that are keenly aware of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Help us not to be Christians who throw you into the top drawer or expect you to meet our every need. Help us to see your worth and help us to yield the totality of our life, whatever the investment calls for. Help us to gladly yield it to you in joy to give all we have 
to hold nothing back and to find ourselves worshiping the one whom we were created to worship in spirit and in truth. Amen. As we prepare for the offertory this morning, I turn your attention to the bottom of page 12 where um, we're at the point where we're going to do the offertory and, and talking about giving regularly, joyfully, and sacrificially. And there's a number of ways to give, and they're listed there. So as we prepare for the offertory, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come here this morning to worship you, to gather with other believers, to learn from your word, to learn from your word preached to us. We can fellowship with one another and uh, just have incredible joy and thanksgiving and fellowship around the finished work of Christ. As we sung earlier, Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. Lord, help us to be cheerful and generous givers. Help us to look at this as an opportunity to give, to facilitate the worship that goes on here at Trinity. Lord, help us to give in a way that provides for those who work on our behalf constantly. Um, as our pastors and as leaders in this church. Lord, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.
All right, kiddos, raise your eyes to receive the benediction of your Savior who loves you. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love. He exalts over you with loud singing. Let us go forth into Owasso, Tulsa, and the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace. You're dismissed. Great job, guys. Good work. Yeah. Yeah. So that's instead of just trying to figure out.